Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. You know, the Word um, is supernatural. It's alive. But you can limit what the Word will do in your life through unbelief. That one's free. But In other words, you have to approach the Word with faith. It, it's, it just doesn't, um, the blessings of God don't just fall on you because you are a Christian. It requires some action on your part to have it change you. You have to be receptive. You have to continue. And in fact, this is this isn't one of my verses, but let's go over there real quickly in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. New King James says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin, <clears throat> excuse me, the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It's one of the things we were, I was praying about as we took the offering or, or in our prayer time. There is, in, in this time that we live in, there is a tendency to want to live in fear. Where are we going? What's happening to our nation? What's happening to our world? How have we fallen this far? How are things this bad? And you can just despair. And, and, and then, you know, you can become weary and discouraged in your souls. That's what verse 3 says. But notice for verse 1. He says, since we've got this great cloud of witnesses, he's referring back to chapter 11 where it goes through the heroes of faith. All of these people that have gone before us, all of the Christians you know that have died and departed, they at least have some awareness of what we're doing here on this earth. The easy-to-read translation, and starting in verse 2, it says, We must never stop looking to Jesus. He's the leader of our faith. He's the one who makes our faith complete. He suffered death on a cross, but he accepted the shame of the cross as if it were nothing because of the joy he could see waiting for him. And that joy that he saw waiting for him was us. He saw our redemption. That was the joy that was set before him. And now he's sitting at the right side of, of God's throne. Think about Jesus. He patiently endured the angry insults that sinful people were shouting at him. Think about him so that you won't get discouraged and stop trying. When New King James in verse 1, it says, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. I always ask myself, well, what is that sin that so easily ensnares us? Well, he says that in the next clause. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. It's not being able to run the race that God's assigned us and not having the endurance to finish the race. It's not how you begin the race. It's not even the middle of the race. It's how you finish the race. Now, they're all important. But how you finish 
is just as important, if not more important, than how you began. Amen? Now, let me get back to my message. We've been looking at, we started a couple of weeks ago, at, at paradox, the paradox of the Christian life. Basically, a paradox is two things that on the surface, when you look at them, they are opposites. They cannot both exist. Well, there are a lot of things in, in the Christian life that seem to be paradoxes. Paul actually addressed, at least in concept, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'm not going to go back there and read there, um, but he, he made the statement in verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. People will tell you, I've had people tell me, I've read through the New Testament, I've read through the Bible, there are all kinds of contradictions. Well, I will grant you when you read through the New Testament and do a surface reading, there are all kinds of apparent contradictions. You have to look closely to realize they're not actually contradictions. They seem, they, they, and a lot of them come down to a paradox. Two things that cannot both be true, and yet they are both true. One of the most important things I said last time, and I'm, I want to hop on this and then jump right off. Christianity is not a religion, and you really need to understand this. For most of the world religions, following that religion makes you a member of that religion, and I use this example. If you follow the teachings of Muhammad, you are a Muslim. If you follow the teachings of Buddha, you are a Buddhist. You can follow the teachings of Jesus all day and all night. It does not make you a Christian. There is only one way to become a Christian, and that's to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's your Savior, accept what He did for you and ask Him to come in, live in your heart, which means basically come in and change me. The death that you died, I am willing to die so that I can die with you and be resurrected to newness, to newness of life. It is quite literally a new birth. I died. The day I got born again, the old me ceased to exist. And a brand new person came alive on the inside of me. It is a new birth. I know that's a cliche. People get, you know, they, they want to make fun of us. Oh, you're born again. I see. But it's a literal uh, um, <clears throat> event that if it does not happen within you, I don't care how moral you are. I don't care how often you go to church. I don't care how tightly you bind yourself to living the life that Jesus lived. You can have ankle bands, wristbands, put a neck band that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? And answer the question correctly every time, and you can still die and go to hell. Because following his actions, following his teachings, does not make you a Christian. You start out by accepting his death, his burial for yourself, accept it by faith, then you get new life, and then you live out your new life <clears throat> through that power. Amen? But even when you start doing that, there are paradoxes. The one we looked at last time, and I'm just going to tag a couple of these, is in our giving, our financial giving. The Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, and so does the Old Testament, you can only become rich by giving your wealth away. Proverbs says this, give freely 
and become more wealthy. This is Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. This is the New Living Translation. Give freely and become more wealthy. Be stingy and lose everything. The generous will prosper. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Now that is specifically talking about your money, but it's also talking about every aspect of your life. If you're, if you're feeling depressed, go cheer someone up. I don't care how bad you feel, you go cheer somebody else up, you're going to feel better. It will, it will change your emotions. It can't help but do it. It's a, it's a principle. The reason that, that our money, though, is important to God. God, first of all, God doesn't need our money. He's in heaven. He doesn't have, they don't have money. Heaven operates on the principle of faith, not on the principle of dollar bills. But down here, God wants, you, wants to have control of your money because of Deuteronomy 14.23, and this is the message version of that. And this is talking about the Jews bringing their tithe. It says, bring this into the presence of God, your God, at the place he designates for worship. And there eat the tithe from your grain, your wine, oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And this is the key right here. In this way, you will learn to live in deep reverence before God, your God, as long as you live. Bringing the tithe, giving God control of your money, puts you in, an, in a place where you are trusting God to live on 90% or 80%. Because keep in mind, the New Testament also says, to him who is given much, much is required. The tithe is only a starting point. It works. Why? Because you're honoring God. That's how, I mean, God set it up that way. It's the same as walking up to a vending machine and, and, you know, well, I don't want to have to put money in there. I think it ought to just give me a Coke. Sorry. It's designed to give you a Coke when you give it the money. God designed this world, the financial systems of this world, for the generous to be blessed. Then the, the next one, and we, we touched on this a little bit, but I want to go back and, and, and do this a little more depth. If you want to be free... You are going to have to be a slave. You have no choice. The price of freedom is to become a slave. And I know that is an absolute paradox. Because nobody, slavery is evil in the world's eyes. Well, enslaving other human beings is evil. I don't know of any example of slavery in the natural world that's not evil. People are human, <clears throat> people are free before God, and no man has the right to cheat another man out of the, the value of his day's work. It's the same as thievery, and thievery is not blessed by God, not endorsed by God. <clears throat> but it is a universal human condition found in pretty much every society that's ever existed. It's only... To be honest with you, it, it, it's only, or it was only eradicated in the Western world when Wilbur, William Wilberforce, who was a, a um, legislator in Great Britain in the 1700s, he, he just preached. He preached to his other members of the House of Commons for years, ruined his health, 
pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing to end slavery in Great Britain. And when he finally preached them to such shame that they said, yes, we'll end slavery in the, in the United Kingdom and in, in all of our colonies around the world, that suddenly the British Navy was empowered to stop international slavery and stop the shipping of slaves. And that started the end of slavery in the Western world. And it was a multi-year battle for him. It was a, a many, many more years before it got eradicated in the United States, but in most of Europe, it ended right there. Now, in the rest of the world, still was practiced, still practiced to this day. You go to Africa, you go to Asia, slaves are quite common. Middle East, it's quite common to have slaves. They're not as open about it as they used to be, but it still happens. Still an abomination. But for us, if I want to truly be, be free in my life, I have to make myself a slave. The question is, who am I going to be a slave to? Because I don't have a choice about being a slave. I'm going to be a servant or a slave to one thing or another. But let's go to John chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. Jesus said this to um, his disciples. Verse 31 of John chapter 8. He said, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now I love, verse 32 is quoted all kinds of places. You go on almost every college campus in this country, you are going to find that quote over buildings everywhere, especially libraries. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. What they usually don't include, especially in secular colleges today, is verse 31, where if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, then you will know the truth. The truth that they know is not just knowledge about facts. It's the truth that Jesus is Lord. That is the truth that makes you free. So the beginning of freedom is the, the beginning of that is the acknowledgement that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. He is fully God, and he is my Savior. And I have invited him to come in and transform my life, take control of me, and I've gotten born again. Then at least in principle, in my spirit, I am free from that point on. In Romans chapter 5, Paul went through the, um, um, the difference between grace and the law. And one of the key verses was that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And because Paul preached grace so hard, people accused Paul of, of preaching that it doesn't matter how you live. In fact, it would be better for you to sin because then you prove how much God loves you. And I've said this before, that's just dumb on the face of it. I mean, that, that's like me, you know, saying, well, you know, my wife loves me unconditionally. And to prove to you her love for me, I'm going to go home and just beat her with a stick today. And I'm, go I'm doing that to give her an opportunity to walk in grace towards me and to walk in forgiveness and walk in love towards me despite how I treat her. Well, you know, God may put up with some of that from me, 
I guarantee you my wife wouldn't put up with that for an instant. She'd take the stick away from me and beat me back. But the principle is the same. Why would I sin to prove God's grace and God's love if I want to prove God's grace and prove God's love, I need to prove that through a transformed life. Now, sin still exists. When I got born again, it was the spirit on the inside of me that got born again. My fleshly body, if I live long enough, this body will, at some point, it's going to stop. It's going to collapse. We're going to put it in the ground. It's just an empty house that's going to become, as, as Shakespeare said, it's going to become worms meat. This body, because it is made up of the natural elements of this earth, this world, and this world was subjected to the fall when Adam and Eve fell, sin not only came in and, and killed them spiritually, it also invaded the earth. The earth groans and looks forward to the redemption when Jesus comes back. The earth, is that's the reason things don't grow well. It's the reason you have to weed your garden. It's the reason we have droughts and hurricanes. One area of the country's got so much rain, the crops can't grow. The other area of the country doesn't have any rain, the crops can't grow. Why is that? Because of the, the curse of the fall is part of this earth. Well, because my, my natural body is made up of the elements of this earth, my body has that curse of the fall and that nature of sin in my physical body. Your, your body will never want a happy medium. It's either going to want to be totally lazy and never do anything, or it's going to want to run to the point where you drop and you get an injury and you just have to keep running because it wants to go to one extreme to another. That basically is, is the best description of, of a sin nature. It is always wanting to push the extremes. That nature of the flesh still exists in my physical body. That's why... I'll give you an example. New Testament says that Jesus is coming back for a church without spot, not without wrinkle. Have you ever wondered how he can do that? Because I look around and I don't see a church without spot and without wrinkle. And you know what? We never will. Because as long as the church is here, people are going to be getting born again. And you're going to have baby Christians. And even the mature Christians are without, not without spot and wrinkle. But when Jesus comes back and the entire church gets brand new resurrected bodies that do not have the nature of sin in them, they are immortal, then you will have a church without spot and without wrinkle. It requires the resurrection of your old natural body and have resurrected a new supernatural body that just like Jesus's, it will never die, it will never be sick, it will never wear out. That is the church without spot and wrinkle. But until that happens, I have the nature of sin in my flesh. But the good news is, that's not the real me. That's just the house I live in. We identify with where we live. People will identify you by your body. Well, that's that tall guy. That's that fat guy. That's that older guy. That's that young guy. That's that handsome guy. That's that, young, that ugly guy. 
Now, you can pick out which one you want to identify with, but people identify you almost universally with the house, this body that you live in, and it's not you. This is not you. It's just a flesh and blood piece of equipment that God requires you to have so the real you can walk around in the earth and do your job. But it's a paradox. People look at you and they think that's you. On the, if you are more than 30, you know what I'm talking about because I get up every morning and I'm totally shocked when I go in the bathroom and see my father looking at me in the mirror. And then I, when I stop and meditate about it, I think, how did I get here? Mentally, I don't think, I have the same likes, the same dislikes, the same basic inclinations that I had when I was 17. I still have the same interest in life. I still have the same, and I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about where, what, what, I, I, I've been a reader all my life. I love to read. I could read 24 hours a day if I could stay awake. I just, I could, you give me a good book, I'm happy as a clam. I've always been that way. To the day I die, I'll probably be that way. That hasn't changed from youth to old age. Some of those basic traits don't change. That's your personality. Now, some of them, the devil will twist, and you need to twist them back. But you need to know that the freedom to change back is yours because of what Jesus did for you. But you're only, you only have the ability to change what, what God gave you a basic personality type, the devil will twist it and want to take it to an extreme. And you can only re-untwist it and come back to his norm through the power of the Spirit, but only by making yourself a slave to him. Said all that to get to Romans chapter 6. And let's just, let me pick a couple of verses, and then I want to go through and read part of this from the Mount's translation. Verse 1, remember, Paul's been accused in chapter 5 of preaching that, you know, we ought to sin to show how great the grace of God is. So he says in verse 1, he answers it, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? If you don't get any other verse, if you don't get any other thought out of this entire series, get that one, highlight that one, mark it down, put it on your mirror, put it in, your, in front of your face and meditate on it. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You are not a slave to sin. You died to sin. When you died with Jesus, we, 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 we picture this in baptism, water baptism. You go under the water because you died with him. You come up out of the water because you are raised to new life. And when you come up out into that new life, you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Drop down to um, verse 4, or excuse me, verse 5. For if... We have been united together in the likeness of his death. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. 
that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Let me read chapter 5 from the Mount's translation. It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. We know this, that our old self was crucified with him. This is not talking about your body as your old self. It's talking about the spirit that, that lived in you before you were born again. And when you got born again, that person, that spirit died. And you were resurrected. You were a brand new creature. God made you brand new on the inside. But notice why he did this. So that the body of sin would be rendered powerless. When, when King James or New King James says that the body of sin might be done away with, that's this physical body, your flesh and blood. But it doesn't mean that it's going to be done away with because a lot of people read that and they say, yeah, when Jesus comes back and the rapture happens, I'm going to get a new body and this body will be done away with and I won't have to sin anymore. No, that is not what that's talking about. That is a true fact. That's not Paul's topic here. Paul's topic here in, in, in verse 6, so that the body of sin, your physical body, would be rendered powerless. Meaning, your physical body and all of its contrary urges is powerless so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You are no longer a slave to those urges. Now, the world will tell you, if it feels good, do it. If it feels really good, do it twice or three times. Your body will always agree with that philosophy. But your body can also be trained Paul talks about that on over in the letter to the Corinthians. He said, I abused my body. It doesn't mean that he beat himself with whips and chains. It means that he took his body. He treated his body the way you should treat a bratty child. If you've ever been with a child who has never been disciplined, they just get their way all the time. When you get them alone, there's only one way to deal with them. You tell them to shut up, and if they don't, you sit on them. My daughter, bless her heart, she has a way with children. She taught kindergarten for many years. I don't know how. I did everything I could to talk her out of doing that. I'm, you're crazy. But she's great at it. But when she was in London, she had a little boy that came into her school. He did not speak English. He was totally out of control. He was out of his element. He didn't understand anything anybody was telling him. And you gave him half a chance. He bolted out the door and bolted out the, out the school and was heading down the road in London, England, to go home, which was half a mile away, and you knew he's like five years old. He's not going to make it. She carried him on her hip. It's the only way she could control him. That's how you treated bratty child. You say, shut up. You're not doing this. Well, she didn't verbally assault. For one thing, she could have told him, shut up all day. He doesn't speak English. She doesn't know what she... But he did know that she took control of him. She took physical charge of his body and made him submit by just hanging on to him. And the first couple of days, she said, it was rough because he's squirming. He's wanting down. He's fighting. And she just said, I'm, you know, after a while it became, this is a test of wills, and I'll just, I'll beat you. And she did. And he finally submitted. And then after a while, he finally started to catch on that I can't leave this place. I have to stay. I might as well start it. And by the end of the year, she had control over him. And she was starting to teach him a few things. 
That's what you have to do with your body. You have to tell your body, just shut up. You think you need that third piece of pie? You ain't getting any pie, not for a week. And when it complains, that's that's it. You're not getting any for a month. I'll be honest with you. People will argue about my diet, but I live on a low-carb diet. I don't eat any sugar. I eat almost no carbs. But I do it for one reason. If I just start eating normal again, like when Gina and I went on vacation, you're out at restaurants, you're, you know, you're, I'm, I'm at my son's house, I'm at my daughter's house, I eat whatever's set before me. So I'm eating normal. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm having macaroni and cheese. And after all, they were, I loved, they was wonderful. It's like I'm in heaven. But by the time I got home, two weeks later, I craved everything and the bucket it came in with it. I wanted sweets. I, everything that I normally don't even care about, my body was just crazy. Oh, you're, you can't be done. Let's go, let's go down to Colonel Sanders and get some fried chicken, but forget the chicken. Let's get some mashed potatoes and gravy and have some of that buttered corn. And I'm, I mean, it was a 24-hour-day job. It just craved it and craved it and craved it. Why? Because I fed it that. And when I fed that, for me, those kind of foods are addicting. That my body craves them and it shouts for them. And I, it, at some point when I got back, the first few days, it was like, okay, I, I'm already off the diet. Let's just, you know, have fun for a while. Might as well. What can it hurt? You know, and every day you go in and that scale gets a little, those readings get a little higher and a little higher. And finally, you just have to say, I'm done. That's it. Not getting anything now. And old man, it screamed. It screamed. And it took me about a week to get over the worst of it, but it took me almost a month before I finally started getting my body back under control. Now that I'm back under control, I could walk past a rack of Snickers bars and I could care less. And that's one of the, you know, Snickers bars and Butterfingers, man, that's heaven. You're going to be able to eat those three times a day and never get fat in heaven. But they have, no, they have no appeal to me now. Why? Because I got my body back under control. But I could only do it by forcing it to do it. But the reason I could do that, verse 7 of Romans 6, he who has died has been freed from sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. That's dropping down to verse 9. Death no longer has dominion over him. Sin no longer has dominion over me. I do not have to sin. My body will always want to. Though the, and, and I'll be honest with you, I don't care how righteous I get, I don't care how, how in control I have my body, that tendency will always be there for me. This is, and when I say I'm on a low-carb diet, it's not a diet, it's a lifestyle for me. And I just live this way all the time. I've learned to love all of the, the kinds of foods I can eat, but I have to stay on it because I know this is where my tastes run to. There are other things in my life that I know I can't indulge in that. You might be able to indulge in that activity with no problem at all. Wouldn't bother you a bit. But if I start down that road, I'm going to go to an extreme. But I'm not going to allow anything to have dominion over me. It's my choice. But because I have made myself a slave to Christ, I am free to do that. The world will tell you if you're really free, you can do anything you want. No. 
doing anything you want. What you, what you present yourself to, you will become the slave of. You present yourself to your flesh and do what every fleshly urge that comes up, you'll be a slave to that, to your flesh. When you finally tell your flesh to shut up and you, you do what we read in John 8, you abide in his word, you take the living word out of these pages and put those living words in here, you renew your mind, you change the way you are thinking, suddenly you make yourself a slave to the word, you make yourself a slave to Jesus, and suddenly... Your flesh just gets real quiet. If you don't feed it, it starts to wither. Amen? It's the secret we learned, and, and if you're not a country boy like me, this may not make sense. But I remember growing up, when you planted corn out in a cornfield, you had to have your rows about 36 inches apart, 30 inches apart maybe, because you had to have enough space between the rows of corn for the big wide tractor wheels to go down without crushing your corn. Because when it got about knee high, you had to go through with your tractor, your tractor with cultivator and you scrape between the rows to kill all the weeds. Now they figured out, that's stupid. Let's put some extra fertilizer in there because we're going to strip the soil with extra corn. We're going to plant the corn rows. If you go out in a cornfield, you can hardly walk between the corn rows. They're about four inches apart. Why? Because when the corn gets about knee high, there's so much shade on the ground, the weeds can't grow. They learned that part of the secret of killing the weeds out is plant so much corn that the shade from the corn kills the weeds. That pertains perfectly to this. You want your sin to shut up? Put yourself into the Word so much that all you see, all you think about, all you hear is God's Word constantly. But it's not easy. It doesn't happen um, just by chance, and it's not something that you're going to get passively. And let me just be quite blunt. If the only time you get the Word is here on Sunday morning, you're starving to death, and the weeds are going to overtake your garden, the garden of your life. This got to be, and again, it's not a religious thing. I don't get up and, and read my Bible in the morning or read it at noon or read it at night because God's going to be disappointed in me if I don't. God loves me either way. I do it because that's what it takes to survive. And after a while, you become addicted to the Word. And when you find yourself addicted to the Word, you miss your Word time. And it's like, oh my Lord, I didn't get to read my Bible this morning. I just, I don't feel off. I feel off. I don't feel right. I got I to gotta take a few minutes and at least get a couple of, and there are going to be some scriptures that you just, they, they feed the need for you. They're your special scriptures that you go back to over and over and over and over because your personality is bent this way and you have to keep applying that pressure of that particular word to you to pull your back end into line with what God's overall plan for your life is. If you're going to have an addiction in your life, have an addiction to the word. It will eliminate all other addictions. Why? Because it shades them out. Just like the corn shaded out the weeds, if you put the word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and meaning you're going to grow. 
That's what it means to be a disciple. And then you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The only true freedom is when you enslave yourself to Jesus and enslave yourself to Jesus' word. When people tell me, well, I'm a Christian, and I ask them, well, what's your favorite Bible verse? I don't have a favorite Bible verse. Well, do you know anything about the Bible? No, I really don't read my Bible. And it's like, I think we may have some head knowledge, but maybe you're not quite the Christian you think you are. There's only one way to have faith as a Christian. That's to have faith in the Word, and specifically to have faith in a Word. Get in the Bible, find a verse that meets the need that you have, and believe that Word. Take the general promise that Jesus has. We talked about it this morning when we prayed for the sick. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless His holy name. Forget none of His benefits. That's a specific word that I can take and say, Okay, God, you said that to me. And I have to meditate on it, meditate on it, meditate until it just grows up in me and starts bearing fruit. And I realize that's not just a general word for Christians. That's a specific word out of Jesus' mouth towards me. And when I look in the word, there's always faith connected with the word. Just having general faith, Buddhists have general faith. Muslims have general faith. They believe, but they don't believe the Bible. They don't have a specific New Testament scripture or Old Testament scripture that they're going to and saying, this is the anchor of my soul. When the world is pressing in on me and my brain and my natural mind says, God, why is this happening to me? God says, what does my word say about that situation? If I don't have an answer, I better get an answer or I guarantee you, you will fall, your faith will falter. The only answer to faltering faith is get back in the Word. Make yourself a slave to the Word, and then you're free from all of the afflictions that the enemy brings into your life. Now, is it easy? Absolutely not. It'll be one of the hardest things you'll do because your brain will scream, it ain't working, it's not working, it's not working. I've used the example back in December when Gina collapsed and had that heart attack. I mean, watching things in the natural, she's dead. If she doesn't die right now, she's probably going to have a very damaged heart and she's going to be brain damaged because she didn't have enough oxygen flowing through her, through her body. But while I'm sitting in the emergency room, I don't know if the doctor's going to come out and tell me, I'm sorry, your wife didn't, we couldn't revive her. Or whether he's going to come out and say, everything's okay. God spoke to me. And he said, she will live and not die, and she will proclaim the, the, the word, the glory of the Lord. He spoke that. I didn't even, I, I knew it was in Psalms, but I couldn't have told you exactly where that psalm was. But I had that word, and I'm telling you, I grabbed onto that thing like a drowning man onto a, a, a life preserver. I hung on to it. We're seven months out, no heart damage, no brain damage, perfectly healthy. Why? Because I had a word. When she got better, she accepted the word. And there's nobody that has more, more, more faith or more impact on her life than her faith. 
I'm her husband. I can stand. I'm the head of our house. That doesn't mean I boss my, my wife around. You know my wife. I don't boss her at all because I don't like having knots on my head. But being the head of my house does not mean I tell her what to do. It does not mean I command her. It means when the devil tries to come in and steal from my wife, I stand up and I say, no, sir, you don't have a right in here. Who in the world do you think you are? Get out. Somebody come breaking through my door at night, I guarantee you they are going to be met with hot lead. I'm going to shoot first, ask questions later. Why? Because my job is to protect myself, protect my wife, and then myself. When my kids were at home, they were included. And I don't, have, I don't have anger in my heart towards anybody. But you come in and threaten my family, your life is forfeit. Just going to be honest with you. I'm going to shoot first, ask questions second. The devil is even more so. I'm head of my house, but I don't have any weapons to fight him with if I don't haven't enslaved myself to the word. And to be honest with you, I used the example earlier, you know, proving my wife's love for me by beating her with a stick. If I want to prove my wife's love for me, I have to return that love unconditionally every time, whether she returns it or not. You know, everybody always says, well, you know, marriage is 50-50. No, it's not. It's 100%, 100%. I have to love unconditionally. I have to be gentle and kind and forgiving whether she is or not. Now, believe me, in our relationship, she gets more opportunities to exercise forgiveness than I do. But it's incumbent upon me. Now, I'm going to finish us up real quick with one thought. Because sin doesn't have mastery over me. I've been set free from sin. We all have. But I walk that out by mastering the Word and empowering the Word in my life. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com. 